on this week's dose, we have Charlie Plochet from S3 Ventures. Charlie started his career in corporate banking and private equity before getting his MBA at UT Austin. After an internship with S3, he joined the team full-time and is now general partner. S3 Ventures is the largest VC firm focused on the Texas venture ecosystem. With over $1 billion in assets under management, S3 has invested in over 50 companies over the past 17 years and has had several successful exits, including Alchemy Technology, which just recently went public, as well as local Austin favorite, Favor, which got acquired by another local Austin favorite, HEB. Charlie also currently sits on the boards of Atmosphere, Interplay Learning, and many other companies. Yeah, Charlie has been a mentor of mine for four years now since I started the VC club at UT as an undergrad when he was our very first guest speaker. And since then, he's helped me tremendously. He got helped me get an internship with one of his portfolio companies, Interplay Learning, uh, which also led to my current full-time job. I'm still with Interplay today, and I can't thank Charlie enough for his continued guidance. Uh, we're super excited to share his story and a lot of his wisdom with y'all today. Um, let's, let's get into it. Let's get right into it. This is Venture Pill, your weekly dose of startups and venture capital. We break down recent startups in the news and interview founders and investors to help you stay informed in the evolving world of venture. All right, we welcome on Charlie Plochet of S3 Ventures, a longtime mentor of mine. Been super excited to have you on the show. Th thanks for coming on, Charlie. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Glad to be here and look forward to diving in. Yeah, well, we've got a lot to get to, so I figure we'll jump right in. And, you know, we know you're active in the Austin community here. You went to UT for business school. What originally brought you to UT as you were young in your career looking to get into venture? Um, yeah, so funny. I actually wasn't didn't have the goal of getting into venture when I came to business school. I was working for a private equity firm before. Um, I came to business school and it was kind of a, a job where you do it for a few years and you go to go to typically a business school program. Austin, this was 2009. And so Austin was uh, it was a fun city that was growing back then. Not near not near the notoriety that it has today, especially kind of worldwide, if you think about it that way. But um, but thought Austin would be a great place to come for a couple years. I had family in Texas, figured I'd probably go to Dallas or Houston afterwards. And then was fortunate enough to to end up at UT and, and get involved with S3 as an intern shortly after I got here. So, so been involved with S3 for almost 13 years now. Wow. That's awesome. And curious to hear in your experience here in Austin, how has the venture scene evolved over the years? Yeah. So um, I would say it's evolved in, in a lot of ways, which, which are pretty much all positive, I think for founders here locally and across the state, I would say the biggest the biggest thing from my viewpoint was when I started working with S3, there was really only a few firms that would, could write a multi-million dollar check into, into a startup locally. Um, Austin Ventures was still around then, but they were not as active as they had been and they were trying to raise a new fund. And there was a, there was a whole thing there where they, where they ended up going away and not raising their next fund. And so they were kind of going away. There was a firm called Silverton that y'all have probably heard of. 
um, and S3 that were pretty actively writing checks, but there wasn't this ecosystem of seed funds. Um, the Central, Central Texas Angel Network was was very active then, and they still are today, but they did a lot of what people call seed investing now. This whole idea of a seed fund wasn't very popular. People did not talk about seed funds, and now they have pre-seed funds. And so it was a much smaller ecosystem then, and now when you look at the amount of firms that have either started here, that have spun out of people that worked at Austin Ventures previously, California firms that have set up offices here, the amount of funding sources that um, a, f a founder locally in Austin can get and, and across the state are just vastly larger. And so that's probably the biggest shocker to me over the last 13 years is, is how much the ecosystem has changed from a funding standpoint. And then look at all the people that have come here and how many more businesses are getting started here. I, I'm very bullish on the, the ecosystem long-term. Yeah, and we wanted to get your vision for, uh, I guess, the Austin and, and the Texas, the broader Texas innovation ecosystem at a later time, but figured I'd, I'd get that from you right now. You know, sure. you've seen it evolve for the last decade plus. What do you see for the next decade or so as things continue to evolve? Yeah, and so um, we, we can get an S3 if you guys want, but we're we're a very Texas-focused firm, so the majority of our investments are Texas-based companies. Most of those happen to be in Austin, given that Austin is the largest you know, ecosystem in Texas. Uh, but, but at S3, we're very bullish on Texas long-term. We think over the next decade that Texas as a whole can easily be the second you know, hub behind the Silicon Valley area, um, you know, beating out the, the, the Northwest, beating out the East Coast, because um, when you really see you know, the population change here, all the companies that are getting formed, all the funding dollars that are coming here and the trajectory that we've been on. I mean, it has been you know, already huge growth and we think it, the, the flywheel is, is, is going and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So we're very bullish on, on Texas as a whole over the next decade and longer. And definitely. And we're excited to be here in Austin as well. You know, so many founders that we're interacting with. I wonder what your take on this would be if you believe that the that it's become more competitive in Texas and in Austin, maybe from S3's perspective? Um, has it become better for founders? Like, is it a rising tide, lift all boats type situation? Or how do you how do you view the competitive landscape with all the yes. funding flowing in? Um, I do think overall it's a rising tide, lifts all boats. You know, Venture's a very collaborative, um, collaborative industry, and we've co-invested with pretty much everybody around town, and, you know, there's room for more than one party in a round. So um, I would say that's actually another difference from 13 years ago. A lot of times there was only one VC in the round, and they have to carry the, you know, the whole bag there, and there wasn't five other firms to participate, whereas now most rounds we do, there's a multiple VC funds at a minimum, if not, you know, five or six in some cases. And so um, this idea of a party round didn't exist in Austin nearly as much, you know, 10 plus years ago as it does now. And so that's, that is definitely a benefit for the founders, right? It's good to have some balance on your investor, on your cap table and in your investor base and have more than just one person that you're talking to about what to do with the business. And so, um, so I, I do think it's a rising tide that's all boat. Is there a competition? 100% there is. Um, do you win every investment you try to get into? Not try to win most of them. And uh, I think that's <laughs> a healthy balance in, in the market. And, and also do you think there's just a lot more companies getting formed here, you know, 10 plus years ago, there was, you know, the big tech companies that were here mostly had back office operations, maybe some sales reps, but they didn't have technical talent here. Like you see at scale with Apple and Facebook and Google and all of these big companies, they're bringing tech talent. And then these 
technical folks are rolling off and starting companies and we funded some, you know, the people out of Apple and other big companies. And so that, it's just a different ecosystem now than it was, you know, when I started in this business. Totally. And it's really fascinating for Sam and I to hear your perspective, just as two people that have been here for six, seven years or so. And I feel like we've seen so much evolution in the venture capital and tech space here in Austin as well. Um, on that note, could you tell us a little bit more about S3 Ventures and what differentiates that firm versus the others out here in Austin? Sure. Um, you know, the quick overview on S3 is we've been investing for 17 years now. Um, we are primarily investing in Texas, as I was saying. Most of those happen to be in Austin. Um, we've now made, I don't know, it's over 50 investments over the life of the firm. Um, we are primarily looking at B2B software. So some type of software that is getting sold into the enterprise typically at a price point of 100K or more, although we do have businesses with more of an SMB go-to-market engine um, that are solving a big problem in the enterprise and that hopefully those companies can scale up to, you know, being large businesses that hopefully can make a public one day or, or hopefully, are, you know, big acquisition for a company. Uh, we do a little bit of medical device and a little bit of consumer, but um, mostly what we do by and large is B2B software. And we'll get involved at the seed stage with half a million dollar check and a note or in a price round. And can lead rounds up into the B rounds. We can lead a 15 or $20 million B round. And then we look to participate over the life of the company as they're maturing and can participate in, in later rounds. Um, you know, what makes us different, you know, we're investing cash just like every other VC. I would say we, we tend to get pretty hands-on with the resources we have. We have a team of 10 here in Austin and um, have a, a staff of associates and senior associates that are experienced people from McKinsey Consulting and investment banks, and they can really jump in and help companies, whether that's building a financial model or you know, helping them build their pitch deck to go for the next fundraising, or maybe they're assessing a new market they want to go into or a competitive landscape. We can really kind of do some consulting projects on the side and just be some extra hands. And so we kind of pride ourselves on having a, a bigger team than most firms our size um, that kind of lean in and help like that. We are, we just closed our seventh fund, which is 250 million in size, which puts our AUM to close to a billion, which say so makes us the largest firm in Texas that focuses on Texas. Um, and so, yeah, the other thing that's, that is very unique about us, this different other firms is all of our money historically over all seven funds has come from, from one very large family office. And so we don't have the constraints of a typical fund where, um, you know, most funds, let's say they go raise a hundred million dollars and they invest in 20 companies, you know, they have to manage their reserves very tightly. And so um, let's say they only have $5 million left in their fund and they have five companies that they want to invest in, you know, that are doing well, they've got to figure out how to divvy up that money and, or can they not support some and support others? And, and we don't have that constraint. So we're going to keep, we can extend our fund. It could, it could end up being 300 million or more and support all those companies that we want to support as they're, as they're growing up. And so um, that's a really unique constraint. And because we have that sole LP, we have a very long-term vision. We can be involved in companies for a decade plus, no problem. We're not looking to, get that quick hit to get a markup so that we can go raise our next fund, which is a, a pressure that some investors have at some, at sometimes. And so that's how we consider ourselves to be pretty, pretty unique. Definitely. Um, and yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you a little bit more about was that difference in the limited partners, I guess, for some of our, we call our listeners, the venture pilgrims for the pilgrims out there that aren't as familiar with how a venture capital fund is structured with limited partners, and then, you know, of course, the partners do, making the investments. Can you just further explain, like, what does a typical fund look like and, and how does that exactly differ from the way S3 is structured 
with the, with regard to those constraints? Yeah. So at, at a real high level, when when an, uh, a, a group of partners is going to go out and raise a venture fund or a private equity fund or you know um, any types of those funds, they're they're going to set a target. Let's say it's a hundred million to follow my example from earlier and. They're going to go out to wealthy individuals and big institutions, whether that's insurance companies or the UT endowment or all the other people that invest in these different alternative asset classes. And so um, let's say that raise that money from all of these different parties. They might have 50, 75, 100 or more LPs, which are limited partners in the fund. And that's who commits that capital. And they commit that capital typically for roughly a five-year period. This is all kind of rules of thumb, a five-year period to deploy into new companies a five-year period to kind of continue to follow on and invest more in the companies as they grow and hopefully harvest, meaning, you know, exit the company. So most fun, most firms funds have, a sorry, most funds have about a 10-year life and they have the ability to extend that usually in year to year increments um, because often like an early stage venture deal, you're in a lot longer than 10 years. Uh, we've been in multiple investments over 10 years. And so, when people commit that certain amount, say I've committed a million of the hundred million, that's all I'm committing. And so that's all you can draw down from me over that drawdown period. And you can't come to me and say, hey, nope, you got to give me another hundred K. I've only committed the million. And so it caused some constraints. Now there are some ways to get around it with what they call SPVs, special purpose vehicles. You can raise money outside of the fund and do some things like that. But um, but it is a constraint that is very real in a lot of firms where they, they, they can't go over that hundred million. Whereas in the example I said, we have a $250 million fund. We could easily deploy $300 million out of that entity. Great that breakdown. Yeah, 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 totally. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying there. And following up on your previous answer, we'd love to hear about a couple of the compelling portfolio companies in the S3 portfolio that some people may not know about. Yeah, I mean, one I'll mention, which is a, a really exciting one that, that I'm involved with, is called Atmosphere TV which you know, people in the Austin community might have seen um, them playing around bars, restaurants, gyms, doctor's offices, but it's it's a streaming service for businesses that has short form content. I like to call it TikTok for business, where it's entertaining videos and short form content that are playing on a TV that's in, in some type of business where usually you would have, you know, talking heads with closed captioning, you know, Sports Center or Judge Judy mm -hmm. or whatever station they have it on. And so this is um an ability for business to have, you know, 60 plus options of audio optional channels. And so we were the first investors in that company. Um, and they're now, you know, in 40,000 plus locations around the country and internationally and, and growing revenue at a clip that we've never seen. And so that's a really exciting one. And so um, if there's any pilgrims out there looking to get involved with a fast growing company, that's a, that's a great one to go look into that's local here in Austin. Um, you know, another exciting one uh, is the one that you're involved with, Sam, is Interplay Learning, which is, um, you know, 3D training for the skilled trades um, through 3D simulations, either on your phone, laptop, or, or desktop, um, or by putting on a VR headset and training yourself that way. So very real 3D simulations that mimic electrical flows and are really helping with the, the skills gap that you see in those, in those skilled trades market, where that's HVAC, electrical, plumbing, there's a very long list, and they've seen some really amazing growth. And... Um, it's an exciting one, kind of a great mission-based company, and, and I think they, they have a very bright future ahead. An another one that might have some openings if people are looking for jobs out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come join the team. I think we're overdue at this point for an episode dedicated to Interplay and, and a breakdown there. It's, it's been an awesome ride. Uh, but, yeah, definitely appreciate you <laughs> shouting that one out. Um, we wanted to also ask, like, 
over over your years, obviously not every investment pans out like an atmosphere and interplay or of course like a favor, uh, which is another uh, prominent one in the S3 portfolio. But maybe it's a failure or maybe it is one of those companies. Which investment would you say did you learn the most from or a unique learning that you could tell us about? Yeah, I could um, I, I could point to a couple. I mean, obvious one. I was involved with a company called Alchemy Technology that's out of the Dallas area. They're an online banking software company. We were the first investors in that company in 2011, um, and we took that company public almost 10 years later. Uh, took it public, so that was last year, and so we saw that company from basically no recurring revenue to I was on the board until it was 160 million plus with 600 plus employees and stepped off prior to the IPO. Um, and so just being, having a front row seat and being involved with that company as they scaled from nothing to IPO ready was, was a really amazing experience. And I, I just learned a ton from that. And I am always pulling from learnings from that experience as I'm trying to help other entrepreneurs and founders grow their businesses. And so that's an easy one to point to. Um, you know, there was another one earlier in my career, uh, where the company was was doing pretty well and they'd grown nicely and let's call it, they got to eight or ten million in revenue SaaS business B2B SaaS business and um, you know they hit a pretty big glitch technically uh, with their product that caused a lot of customer churn um, and so it, it ended up causing the business to get get into some pretty big trouble uh, from a churn basis and trying to keep the team together and it caused a lot of problems and then that company had taken out some debt and. In, in the end, the company had to be sold basically to, to pay back the debt. We couldn't raise money. Um, it was just a very bad situation for everybody involved, right? We lost our complete investment. You know, it, it, it just a position nobody wants to be in. You know, there's things that the company definitely learned as far as technical glitch, and there was some mistakes that were made that shouldn't have been made and things like that. But, um, you know, from a venture, from the investor standpoint, you know, uh, it taught me that, you know, even when things are up and to the right, you know, for several years, that n nothing's a given, like anything can happen. Nobody would have ever predicted that this could have gone wrong with this company. Um, and, you know, also that when you're when you're putting debt on these these companies uh, that are still, you know, not cash flow positive, you know, it's, it could put you in a risky position. You know, we might have been able to get the company to break even, but the debt was being serviced. We couldn't take the debt out with another lender. And so um, at the time we took the debt, we thought it was a great idea. And then in the end, like that, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin. We just couldn't get there. Um, and so that's a good kind of positive and negative learnings for you. But uh, yeah, learned a lot, good and bad over the years, for sure. And given your experience, Charlie, I'd love to hear something you believe about the startups and venture capital space that is contrary to the mainstream sentiment on the space. Um, yeah, so I, th I think one thing that and I don't know that I've, I've said this out loud in any public forum before, but one thing I think that is probably um, kind of against mainstream is I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of capped notes and safes. Um, and so for you, you earlier, when I say note, I'm referring to a convertible note where um, the investors come in, some group of people comes in and puts money in a note structure uh, that historically, when, when I started in the venture business, there was no concept of capping these. This, this was, that was not a thing. You got a, what typically was a 20% discount on the next round. And so by you coming in and bridging this company to the next financing or wherever you're getting them to, the benefit you got from that, from bridging that company was a 20% discount on the next round. You also got interest that accrued. And so you got the benefit of that too. And so that was, that was the benefits of coming in on, on, on these convertible notes, which they've now come up with a, with a structure called a safe, but 
conceptually, it's the same thing. And so um, as the market started kind of going bonkers, some people, um, you know, would put money in these notes and then the company would go nuts and then they would get converted at a pretty large round. And so they came up with the concept, well, let's put a cap on it, which functionally means, you know, if I'm putting money in your company and I say, hey, there's a $25 billion cap and then you go raise money at a $50 million valuation, I'm not paying 50 million, I'm paying 25 million. I'm capped at that valuation, which historically I would have gotten a 20% discount on the 50. So I've gotten a $40 million valuation, still a nice mm -hmm. discount to the round. And so um, the reason I don't like it is because I think entrepreneurs can get in trouble. They think they're not pricing the round, but inevitably they are pricing the round. And so in a good scenario where they, that gets them to where they can raise it higher than the cap, they end up converting at that cap, you know, that earlier stage cap, and then they take dilution on the next round. And it's like, they're kind of kicking the can down uh, the road of and, and getting two rounds of dilution at once, which can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, it, in my view, you know, the 20% discount is, is a fair, you know, payment for the risk you're taking in most situations. Obviously there are yeah. exceptions to the rule, but, but we, that's how we did it forever. We still do uncapped notes with our companies in some cases. But it, but it's it's mainstream, and that's how pretty much all of them are done now is with these caps. And so, in my view, it's not. I mean, from the investor standpoint, it's probably actually a positive in most cases of the investor. But I think it's one of the worst things to happen to founders since I've hmm. been in the business and watched the changes. Why why do you think that they've gained so much popularity for founders if if it might be hurting them? Well, I think the the early stage investment community started demanding it. It's an easy mm -hmm. way for um, an angel investor or a seed fund to just get a round done and you don't have to do the pricing of the round and you're kind of, you're, you're pretending like you're not pricing it, but Hey, I don't want to pay more than this on the next round. But in reality, you're, you're kind of pricing it now in a very downside scenario where you raise money at less than the cap, that's different than you get the discount. Mm -hmm. But in an upside scenario, in a, in a positive scenario for the founder, they're getting priced. So you should have just priced it at that to begin with, if that's, what you were going to do. And so like, there's almost no difference with the loot. So it's, um, whereas previously they would have just gotten the, you know, the 40 million and the 50 million valuations in my example. So they're taking just as much solution, but they're not pricing it and nobody's getting conviction to lead the deal and price the deal. And it's just an easy way for people to like throw money in. I don't know where the concept came from. It could have come from one of the accelerators and then it went out mainstream. Yeah. I don't really know why it got so mainstream, but when I say mainstream, it is like the 99% norm these days. Yeah. Um, Quite a shift then. Um, we haven't gotten too deep into into safes before. It may be worth talking that through at, at another episode, but I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, we also wanted to know what's the craziest startup idea that you've heard? Maybe one of them. Yeah, craziest. You know, we one time got an inbound on the cold. Or, you know, We read every cold email that comes in through our website. Somebody lays eyes on it and looks at it. We once got one for a, a catfish farm. I think it was in a different country too. That, that was, that was a pretty crazy one. Um, you know, one that I actually met with, that was also kind of crazy, not as crazy as a catfish farm. Cause that's not feasible for the venture, a venture investor invested. <laughs> um, I did look at a company a long, long, long time ago and they were going to remove tattoos off of people painlessly, which uh, y'all probably have tattoos or no, or no people that have tattoos. If you don't have your stuff, <laughs> a lot of people have tattoos. They regret them later in life. I'm like, this market is ginormous. If you can, you know, painlessly remove these, that would be amazing. But at the time I was talking to the company, they were very early stage. They'd only done some tests, you know, in the lab, trying to figure out if this might be feasible. 
you know, and I asked the, the founder, I said, well, what, what's the next step? How are you going to figure out if this is a viable idea? And he said, you know, I'm going to go put some monkeys, some tattoos on some monkeys, and then we're going to try to take them off. And I just said, well, if you get the tattoos off those monkeys, you call me back. <laughs> but, uh, what a line. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very true story. Um, it, the technology is never working, and so that never came to fruition. But that was a fun story I always laugh about because it would be pretty amazing if somebody figured that out. Thanks. So now there are just a couple tattooed monkeys walking around. <laughs> I think somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's really funny. Uh, would love to hear about some of the specific qualities and traits that you're looking for in founders and founding teams that you like to invest in. Yeah, I mean, the traits in the, in the founders and the founding teams, um, you know, you, you want them to be a visionary at some level, right? They, they've got a a way they're going to solve a big problem and they're really passionate about it and they're willing to go through everything to get there. I mean, that's kind of like basic, uh, you know, basic building blocks for, for backing a founder, you know, something that I'm, I'm constantly trying to assess while I'm meeting with them for meeting one with the founder is could they convince me to quit my cushy corporate job and come work for their, you know, tiny startup that just maybe raised a seed round of funding for the equity package. And because it's so visionary and this is going to change the lives of all these people. And, um, you know, at some level they really do need to be a good storyteller. And I'm not saying every founder has to be a great storyteller, but it's a, to raise money, to get your early customers, to recruit a team, to keep that team around, to build a culture, to keep everybody around. Like you, you really got to be a good storyteller in a lot of ways and be able to get people around you and get, and get everybody excited. And so, you know, recruiting people to an early stage company, even after you've raised a round of funding is hard, right? Um, you know, especially if the more senior you go, uh, it's the bigger pay packages they might be stepping down from. And so you really got to be able to get people excited about your vision, be able to articulate it well. Um, you know, often somebody will be in my office and, and they'll leave and I'll go, man, they should have switched their pitch this way or that way. Or they, just need, <laughs> they need to dial it in just a little bit better uh, because, you know, I had to ask 10 questions to get there and they, they could have, you know, said a little more concisely, but, um, but yeah, it's not an easy, easy skill set to have, but, but I'm constantly thinking about that all throughout diligence. And then, you know, when, when I meet their co-founders, their other team members, we always have the whole team come in and present to us for diligence. And we're watching how they interact, you know, as the, as the CEO founder, are they just talking the whole time? Are they talking over their team or are they letting their team talk for the, you know, the areas that they are overseeing in the business? And so that's something we're kind of trying to watch because, um, you know, if you're talking over your, your team and your founders, right? Like a lot of people don't want, like that's not a good sign. And so um, those are kind of the main things we're trying to, you know, some of the, some of the things I'm trying to assess with the, with the founders in the early days. Yeah. Awesome. And, you know, we have a lot of listeners that may want to become a founder, uh, some that may want to become an investor um, or are thinking about both, I think similar to us. Um, what we wanted to ask you a little bit more about was networking. You hear a lot about networking when it comes to venture capital and the people skills that it requires. What's your philosophy on networking? And, you know, how do you think about that with regards to how important it is to your job? Um, you know, I've, I'm an extrovert naturally. So networking comes easy to me, uh, but there are introverts. My, my, my partner is an introvert. And so, um, and so it's a, a little harder for him to go to the episode. Networking comes natural to me. I think it is is an important uh, factor in, in the venture community. I mean, because in the end, to be a good venture investor, you need good deal flow, and you usually get good deal flow from people in your network that you know um, that are connected to 
people working on amazing things and, you know, other founders in the community. And so um, I do view networking as a long, long-term game, right? You're putting a, a lot of coins in the machine over the years, hoping they pay dividends down the road. I think it's, I think it's something where, you know, if you do someone a favor or you're helpful to them that like that might come back in spades for you, it's kind of, there's, there's a give and take there. Um, so I think it goes both ways. Right. And um, you got to be willing to devote time to it, actively think about it. Um, but you know, a lot of it you do in your earlier career leads to successes later in your career. Um, you know, I still proactively network with people around town. I go to certain events, um, not near as much as I did, you know, in my, early thirties, you know, a long time ago. And I was going to a lot of events all the time. I was always trying to have coffee with people. And so whether that's founders, whether that's just lawyers, accountants, um, other investors, um, just any, anybody, right. That that's connected into the ecosystem somehow. And so in the end you need, you need good people sending you good deal flow. And I do think it's an important part of the, of the VC business and why there are so many networking events that you can go out to. I and mean, there's something you can go to practically every night in Austin, uh, you know, capital factory here in town, hosting events all the time all kinds of people at. And so, um, you got all the, the big conferences that come through and everything in between. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a skill that pays dividends. I mean, if you think about my company atmosphere, as an example, um, that company came to me through a founder that I had gotten introduced to through somebody else and kind of, you know, caught up with him once or twice a year for years before he sent me atmosphere and he knew the founder of atmosphere and said, Hey, this is some friends writing some money. And that's how I up with that deal. So that was like, put the coins in for years, get to know somebody well, uh, they get to know you, they're comfortable introducing you. And so that really, uh, that's how this works in a lot of ways. We also fund companies that come in completely cold. So you don't always have to have the warm intro, but, uh, but it certainly helps. Yeah. It's incredible what building a relationship, you never know what will come out of it. And, and for me that built just to talk about a little bit of background between me and you, I, you know, I brought you in for a, a club meeting that I had started in college, and I never knew that that would lead to the full-time job I would have, you know, coming out of school at an awesome company in Interplay. So it just goes to show that, you know, you maintain a relationship, and you never know what, what that will lead to. So it's awesome to hear that. 100%, and that's a, a perfect example, Sam, and uh, kudos to you for kind of staying on me and then having that opportunity <laughs> to come up. You know, they say uh, – uh, what is it? Luck, luck is when skill meets opportunity. <laughs> you got to create some, yourself some luck. There's, luck is yeah. key in venture too. You need some luck for sure. But uh, anyway. Yeah. And so Charlie, this has already been such an informative and educational episode. And a big part of what we like to do here at Venture Pill is give advice to people who are trying to get into venture capital, but they don't exactly know how to start. And so just to build upon some of the blueprints you've already shared. Do you have any general advice for people that are looking to get into venture capital and startups? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it, it seems like this crazy, sexy, fun industry, and it, and it really is. If you're passionate about it, it's a it's a great industry to work in. I absolutely love my job, hands down. Um, you know, but it is a small industry. It's very small, really. Right? Like um, I can count, you know, on my hands how many junior associates are at local firms here in Austin, which is a decent sized venture market. And so um, you got to be pragmatic. So you got to get to be realistic about that. But I, I would say the most typical path into a junior role at an invest at, at a VC firm is likely investment banking, ideally in a TMT group, uh, you know, out of a bulge bracket bank, or any kind of bank really, where you've gotten some really good financial modeling training and market sizing training and some basic building blocks that we do in the venture business during diligence. 
Um, not a requirement. I'm just saying that's probably the most common path in a, being in a management consulting group. Also pretty common. We just recently hired um, um, a lady out of McKinsey Consulting. Um, and so that, that's a path as well. Uh, we also hired some, a couple of people that, that worked at startups. And so um, we go on to work at a fast growing startup and seeing that from a different you know, other side of the angle than, than uh, where the venture investors see it is it, a good path, especially if you have a finance background or, or capable in the finance area. Um, so there's a, a lot of different paths. I would say there's not, you know, some people go get computer science degrees and, and X, Y, Z and, and figure their way out. And I think it's, it's, um, there's, there's a lot of different paths. There's no kind of right way, but those are probably the most common, but I do also like to say, you know, there is no license you have to get to be a venture investor. All you need is money. You can answer. So you convince <laughs> anybody to give you money. You're a venture capitalist. It's that simple. So, uh, some people get in that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, we also usually like to wrap out the episode with just a couple of startups outside of your general focus and with S3's focus that you think people should keep an eye out for that we should maybe cover in, in a soon episode. Um, yes. I mean, the main thing outside of our focus is stuff that's real consumer, um, you know, like CPG related. Yeah. Um, we, we don't really invest in our area of expertise. Um, one that I like around town is called Eternova. And um, led by an amazing female founder named Adele. And she has um, basically they figured out a way to take hair, whether that's from human or a pet, as pets could chunk their business, and they create a diamond. So once you've lost a loved one, whether that's a family member or you know an acquaintance or or a pet, you can go through their process and actually have a, a diamond made. And there's all kinds of variations of what you want, and put it into a piece of jewelry. And so therefore. That's some way for that person to wear that that loved one around and keep them close to them uh, going. I think that's a really interesting company, a different way to, to celebrate the life of whoever's whoever you've lost and and keep them close to you. And so I thought, I think that's a really interesting one around town. Um, another consumer one I'm afraid I'm a, I'm a fan of is called Everlywell. They're a little later stage, they're much bigger. Uh, sure, Julia, the CEO founder there, she's doing an amazing job. But there that might be another one where there might be a lot of opening job openings in the Austin area. Um, but they're a way to get at-home blood tests for um, testing for all kinds of things, different food allergies, different um, you know medical issues you may have. But they ship you a package, you drop a couple drops of blood in it, um, and send it off. And so, uh, bad blood is the example of where that went very, very badly. They're doing it a different way that actually works. Mm -hmm. So, um, kudos to them as another kind of exciting CPG company out there. Some really fascinating startups there. I love the turning hair into, you know, diamonds and wearable jewelry. I think that's a really novel concept. Uh, before we let you go, Charlie, we just want to make sure our listeners know the best way for them to connect and follow you as well as other members on the S3 team. Yeah, so, um, A, we have S3 on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn a good amount. I mean, I respond to direct messages on LinkedIn all the time. Uh, not every single one, but a good chunk of them. Uh, <laughs> so that's probably the easiest way to, to reach me. And I think you can follow me. I'll post some stuff on, on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. I don't post as much on Twitter, but at Charlie Ploche on Twitter. Um, but those are probably the easiest ways to to follow what's going on with me and S3. And we, we have an S3 newsletter. I'll give a plug for that where you can sign up for that. We send something out, you know, roughly quarterly. If you go to our website, S3BC.com, we have financial model templates. We got cap table templates. We got market size, all these free templates that students can go download. Young people go download as they're thinking about a business. Maybe they want to model it out. Um, those, these items get downloaded thousands of times a month uh, from our website. And they're used 
really all over the, the globe in different business school classes and other things. And so um, to the extent people are, want some free tools, feel free to go check out our website. Yeah, I've had the chance to check out some of those resources. They're awesome. Well, thanks so much, Charlie. This was an awesome episode. We appreciate you coming on, and hopefully it's the first of many in the in the future. We can ha- have you on when, when there's a big exit or something like that. Maybe it's an interplay uh, exit celebration, but uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, guys. Thanks for having me, and uh, I look forward to catching up soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another dose of startups and venture capital. And as always, we appreciate our pilgrims spreading the word about the show. Share with your friends and help someone else make the pilgrimage. See you next time. She told me that she only bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibe's a little low-key, okie-dokie, that's alright, but wait, I don't know how to do it.